tonight, I'm stepping into the shoes of our dean, Anita uh, Krug, who unfortunately was unable to attend. But on her behalf, I'm very pleased to welcome you to tonight's candidate forum for the Office of Cook County State's Attorney. Uh, the forum will focus on gender-based uh, violence issues and is sponsored by a collaborative group of uh, advocacy organizations. And it is now my uh, distinct pleasure to turn the podium over to Aaron Walton, the Executive Director of Resilience. I didn't have to do this a year ago. Now, I've, now I can't see without them. Um, good evening, everybody. First, I would like to thank Mr. Steve Soule and the Kent, uh, Chicago Kent community. We are so grateful for your regularly opening your doors and for holding space for important discussions like this. I also want to acknowledge the many organizations that are responsible for, convening, for this convening tonight. Our partners are the Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation, Chicago, Chicago Children's Advocacy Center, Chicago Says No More, Lifespan, The Network, Traffic Free, Shriver Center on Poverty Law, and Resilience. Um, we asked all six candidates tonight to answer a questionnaire about their beliefs and plans to address gender-based violence. Four candidates, including all of them tonight, uh, have completed the questionnaire. You can find that information on any of the organizations that I previously listed on our websites. We asked all six candidates to attend tonight's forum and speak to the community about gender-based violence. And we're grateful that Bill Conway, Kim Fox, Donna Moore, and Pat O'Brien prioritized this issue and are here with us tonight. Sexual and domestic violence are an epidemic throughout Cook County, affecting people from all walks of life, particularly women and girls, people of color, immigrants, people with disabilities, and the LGBTQ community. While they are some of the most common crimes, they remain often the least talked about when talking about violence in Chicago. The Cook County State's Attorney's Office is the second largest in the country and is responsible for the prosecution of all misdemeanors and felony crimes committed in Cook County. This office assists thousands of victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, and human trafficking each year. The Cook County State's Attorney has wide-ranging authority in the prosecution of these crimes, as well as the ability to serve as a voice for victims of crimes in Cook County. They are the leader in all issues related to criminal justice and have major responsibility for public safety as the chief law enforcement agent in Cook County. With one in three, three women and one in six men in the U.S. experiencing some form of contact sexual violence in their lifetime, and only an estimated 1% of those who perpetrate sexual violence being held accountable by our criminal, system, criminal justice system, it is important to understand the specific issues that makes gender-based violence challenging to investigate and prosecute. 
Additionally, for domestic violence, where arrests hover around 50% and 80 to, 80 to 90% of cases are filed as misdemeanors and are resolved through a plea bargain, it is critical that prosecutors understand how their role impacts safety, how gender-based violence crimes requires specialized policies and training, and how if the state's attorney's office isn't careful, it can act to further silence crimes, silence, excuse me, silence victims of some of the most unreported crimes. We're grateful to our candidates for your thoughtfulness in answering our questionnaires and in being with us this evening. And those of you in the audience for being present and for showing your support and concern in the role the Cook County Prosecutor plays in the lives of victims and those who cause harm. Thank you for being here. We have a few guidelines tonight. Um, one, be polite, no interrupting. Everyone wants to hear all of the answers. Candidates have been, have been instructed, excuse me, to not talk about the Jesse Smollett case or campaign finance. And lastly, the last five minutes of tonight will be audience participation. So fill out the note cards that you have been provided or will be provided tonight. With that said, I am pleased to introduce our moderator for the evening, Dana Kozlov. Dana is currently the political and government reporter at CBS2 News in Chicago, where she's been a reporter for 16 years. Prior to that, Dana was a reporter and fill-in anchor at WGN-TV for almost eight years. While her parents are from Chicago, Dana grew up in Northwest Suburban Palatine. While working at her first, we won't hold that against you. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> While working at her first job in Peoria, Illinois, Dana became concerned about the issues of domestic and gender-based violence. She took the 40-hour domestic violence training with the state of Illinois and volunteered as a victim's advocate, helping domestic violence and rape victims while they were in the hospital emergency room. She most recently served on the board of the network. Please join me in, in welcoming Dana Kozlov. Thank you. Are these now too? There we go. So this, my first, um, my first guest is a Democratic candidate for Cook County State's Attorney, Bill Conway, and um, our plan is to have a conversation for. I can't see you if I wear these for 20 to 25 minutes total. Um, and so again, thank you for being here. And it is my job to keep us on topic, which I plan to do. So thank you, Bill, for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you to. Thank you to Chicago Kent, thank you Dana for moderating, uh, and thank you for the entire uh, gender-based violence advocacy community for, for uh, having this and supporting, and supporting this forum and, and being here tonight. Okay, Bill, first question. Um, if, if you get the thank yous. Um, I, yeah, let's, let's move <laughs> on. We, right. it's, a, it's a given. Uh, uh, first question, if you're elected, what will be your first office policy priority and first operational shift on gender-based violence when taking office? Well, I, I first want to talk about the operational shift because uh, sex assaults and, and domestic violence and even human trafficking are, are unique types of cases that really require the ASAs to have unique training and 
even experience handling those cases. You know, so for example, in other different types of cases, you know, I would say when somebody gets the felony trial division, everybody be in, needs to be able to pick up a gun case or pick up a traffic case or something like that. But in, in those uh, types of cases, there needs to be unique training. And because of that, the first thing I'm going to do is we're going to create a separate bureau for sex assault and domestic violence and human trafficking cases. So we really have ASAs that are well-trained to be able to handle handle cases involving those those types of victims. So you talked about the importance in your questionnaire of vertical prosecution. Yeah. Would that play in, that change play into that ideal? Absolutely. You know, so it is right now the way the way felony sex assault and uh, sex assault cases are handled is about half of them will be within the sex assault domestic violence division and the other half will just be assigned out to to the felony trial division. Yep. And the problem with that is then every time the victim or the survivor, I should say, comes to court, they need to relive that experience again, you know, telling this is what happened to me, this is how this was the statement I gave, this is how. But if you're dealing with the same prosecutor, uh, the same prosecutor the whole time, you don't, you don't run into those sorts of issues. So that is a change you would make as well, as you oh, try yeah, to keep yeah, it. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, no, and I think it's... Uh, a necessary and overdue one. Okay. Um, we noticed in your questionnaire that you talked about human trafficking and drug use. Um, would it surprise you to know that sex trafficking has more in common with domestic violence than drug use? And is there anything more you would like to say about the challenges in prosecuting human trafficking? Well, I would say something that it does share is that it is difficult. Uh, you have very sensitive victims in, in those situations. And Sometimes we have to be creative about how we're going to prosecute the perpetrators uh, because of that. You know, I was, I was in, when I was in the office, I was in financial crimes for a long time there. And that is part of, uh, a, part of a perhaps a unique way that we may be able to get after, get after human trafficking rings. Uh, there's an epidemic of violence against trans women of, of color in particular. What's your plan? Well, we certainly have to be uh, engaging, engaging that in that community. Um, to so to make sure, and also need to make sure that our ASAs have specialized training with regard to uh, with regard to the unique crimes that that will be visited upon the uh, trans community. When you say engage with that community, what does that look like to you? Well, it looks like you know it looks like singular outreach uh, from our office, both through our community justice centers and as well as our 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 um, connection to the advocacy community, like some of the folks here. That's important, that relationship, uh, the, if, if you were elected, the, the relationship of the Cook County State's Attorney's Office and the advocacy community, that's a priority? It is, you know, and, and we need to make sure that we are engaging the advocacy community as early as we can in the process. You know, hopefully it would happen when we have a survivor at the police station. There are people there that are ready to assist them uh, with not only the emotional burden, but also with getting an order of protection quickly and things like that. That's a little bit of what I used to do 100,000 years ago, but in the hospital setting is, yeah. is I was a liaison, if you will, between the victim, the police, the, the, you know, the, the medical practitioners. And, is that and, something you would want to see replicated and, and also used more prolifically? Well, we would, we would certainly want to be engaging with the advocacy community to make sure that Survivors are getting the right kind of programming, and of course the advocacy community can help us in terms of advocating for legislation and things. Uh, 
that would that would help that would help the community. Um, you know, I, I have to go not off topic, but um, resources are always an issue. Um, have you thought about in speaking about the outreach and and um, certainly working with the advocacy community has its own set of money, mm -hmm. but in, in assigning special units, et cetera. Um, are you concerned about having the fiscal resources to be able to do that? Well, I mean, we're always concerned about that, for example. But one thing I think that will bring about a significant amount of savings is centralizing the resources that we have in the office uh, within one, one entire bureau. And by elevating it to the bureau level, it, it by design will be getting additional resources as well. Because I come back to the fact that the ASAs in that unit really need to have the specialized training that other units perhaps don't don't require. Okay. Um, do you support Representative Buckner's bill to create a task force on the missing, murdered Chicago women? You know, I have I have not heard about this. However, what I will what I will say is I did read the very disturbing articles in the Sun Times last week by by John Fountain, uh, and that was not the first time I had heard about this. Uh, I, a prominent pastor on the South Side had said, you know, we have fifty one women. Uh, that were uh, sex workers and things that that have gone that have gone missing. He kind of remember just threw this out. I was like, I've never heard about that. And then then I saw a couple weeks later that um, uh, you know the articles from last week. What is clear is we need to have a task force together that will in, that will include law enforcement, our office. Uh, hopefully federal, federal law enforcement as well, and certainly people from the advocacy community because we may have one or more multiple serial killers out there uh, and, and apparently targeting a, a marginalized community, frankly. Possibly, so. right. Um, you know, that, that speaks to data and also information coming from the police department, which, by the way, is also sometimes difficult for us to get. And mm -hmm. so sometimes we don't even see a pattern ourselves until suddenly something pops. but um, So you're not sure on, on whether or not you support that bill yet? You well, want to I take just, a look I, at that? I have not, I have not okay. read the specifics of the bill. What I am, I can assure you that I am in favor of setting up a task force with the proper resources to find out what's happened to uh, these 51 people that have all been strangled in similar methods and how scary that is. Yeah. Uh, how do you believe the victim's constitutional rights should be enforced? And what should remedies be when rights are violated. When you say victim, what do you, what do you mean? Uh, victims of gender-based violence, domestic violence victims. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, well, certainly they have to be, be able to get orders of protection very quickly. I mean, that is something that our office needs to be very much on top of. What about when it comes to uh, prosecutors informing victims um, of, of something key in the case or um, consulting with victims? What are your thoughts on on the priority of that sort of relationship? Oh, it, yeah. I, that's part of the reason why I think it needs to have vertical prosecution of these types of cases by people that are specially trained to handle them so that, so that they uh, are able to handle their unique needs in addition are in consistent touch with people from the advocacy community to help in that help in that, that struggle as well. And what are your thoughts if those rights aren't, you know, are violated or if that, if that sort of communication isn't happening, which in some cases could put a victim in jeopardy, depending on what we're talking about here, um, certainly re-traumatize, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, any thoughts on any 
remedies for that with the prosecutors themselves, with the staff. You mean if, if our prosecutors aren't doing their job? Yeah. Oh, I mean, if our prosecutors aren't doing their job, they got to be moved elsewhere, especially since the reason that we are creating this bureau is so that we are making sure that we are putting the right resources into training our ASAs so they can handle cases handle cases like this. And, and, um, and we realize how, how, important, how important this is. And I say this from a position where I was handling domestic violence cases with absolutely no training. Uh, in fact, I see Judge Coco here in the back. And when I was started in the office, I was assigned to, to Branch 46, which was, which was a general misdemeanor room. And what would happen is once we were done with our call, we would go help out the domestic violence assistants. And Judge Coco is a very nice woman, but I could tell that she would not be pleased to see us coming because we had no idea what we were doing mm -hmm. when we were handling, handling these types of cases. And so speaking as, uh, as someone who was, um, to put it politely, ill-equipped to handle that, those types of cases, we need to make sure that our ASAs are well-equipped to handle those, handle those types of cases. Are you familiar with um, House Bill 4788? It was introduced by Representative Kalish. It has to do with um, more clearly laying out the enforcement mecha mechanisms for victims' rights violations. First, before I ask if you support it, I want to you know, yeah, fairly I, I, ask I, if you're familiar. I have heard of it and its title. Beyond that, I mean, beyond that, I'm not familiar with its text, so I don't want to okay. uh, get in. But, I mean, of course, I'm in favor of enforcing the Victims' Bill of Rights, assuming that the title matches the language inside. But... But that, beyond that, that doesn't what always that doesn't always happen. Okay. Hence, no child left behind. Seem to leave a lot of children behind. The uh, Patriot Act, you know, you can go on and on. <laughs> um, misdemeanor data is not currently collected or published in large part due to this uneven working relationship between the state's attorney's office, the clerk, the chief judge's office. What's your plan for solving that gap? Yeah. So can I can I speak a little broader on data for a second? Okay. Quickly, Don't though. Don't worry, I won't be talking about campaign finance. No, 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 no. No, no, no. So, uh, you, you know, the way, one thing that is going to be very helpful when we, when we do centralize all of our work uh, on sex assault, domestic violence, and human trafficking cases is that we will be able to collect a lot of data on, on, who, on victims and perpetrators and, and um, uh, you know, certainly by race, gender, disability, community, et cetera. And that will be, uh, and we will have that as a resource because we have all that in the same place. But similarly, we need to be collecting data at the misdemeanor level. And if we have to be doing it by hand ourselves, by courtroom, we will begin to then see, um, uh, you know, we probably can't get as granular in the data because there's roughly 50,000 domestic violence cases a year. But um, we certainly can as far as how many of these cases are being reduced, how many of these cases... Uh, you know, what types of victims do we have? How many of these cases go to trial? How many of these times does the victim, uh, the survivor, I should say, not want to go, not want to go to trial? And it's important for us to keep that data. But one thing I will say on that is it is going to be, uh, it is going to be a requirement that when a case is reduced from domestic battery to simple battery, that the person needs to go and get the approval of a supervisor, supervisor to do that. I at the very least, I think you said in your questionnaire, right? I think, at I, the may very have, I, least. think I may have said, yeah, at the very least. I think I may have said it uh, half a dozen times or something in there. And, and Amy, I hope it's okay if I embarrass you here, but uh, Amy is a, is a survivor as well. And her, her case, without her approval, was reduced from domestic battery to simple battery, uh, in, which, in, a, in a horrible set of circumstances. 
And what happens, uh, what happens when that occurs is domestic battery is itself a, a uh, is, is unique in the criminal code in that uh, it is a permanent conviction, it cannot be expunged, it, it uh, uh, removes the ability for the perpetrator to buy guns and things like that. So that, that is not a decision that should be made lightly and people in the domestic violence division have been, are, are you know, one to three years in the office and they're not ready to Yes, I'm taking away your, yeah, your no, lines. Because, because yeah. we have to go to um, audience questions, but I want to ask one quick follow-up, and I'm going, and, and it's totally okay if you bring me a couple questions, right. but you talked about guns, yeah. and I just want to leap right to that, and I want to ask you to be concise, if, if possible. Yeah. Um, I don't mean that. It, that sounded like I was insulting No, 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 it's okay. I'm a, um, you know, I'm a first-time first person running for office, and sometimes I try and filibuster with no, things, that, but I don't yeah. know any better. It's not, Unintentionally. Yeah. So you talked about guns, and mm-hmm. there there is, it's not just in Cook County, but in general, there is an issue right now with people who have uh, domestic violence convictions on their record and have, you know, even if they have FOID cards that are valid and they have firearms, there is a total disconnect there in so many cases of being able after a domestic violence conviction of making sure that those guns are relinquished, which there's if that's right, yeah, if, yeah, which they're supposed to be. So what are your thoughts on, on that and making sure that due diligence is done when it comes to removing guns from domestic violence offenders? So first off, the, the odds of a serious crime happening with, when you have domestic violence and guns in the home is very high. And of course, there's been a lot of discussion nationally about the correlation between domestic violence, guns, and mass shootings as well. So what, what's something that we can do at the state's attorney's office is that we can make sure that uh, when someone is is rearrested and they have had their FOID card revoked, presumably mm-hmm. for an order of protection or domestic battery or something else, that we can tell the judge in bond court, Your Honor, the perpetrator, the defendant, has not turned in his guns and has not provided any any proof that these guns have been transferred, and we're going to ask that that be a condition of his bond, or that he not be able to bond out until that, until that condition is met. And that's something that we can do. You know, I wish we could say, we're gonna have the Illinois State Police go to every home where someone's had their guns revoked, uh, you know, their, their void cards revoked and get every gun. Uh, I wish we could do that, uh, but that's not, that's not realistic. But that is one thing we can do in the state's attorney's office to at least begin to stem that problem. And be more proactive about that. Okay, yeah. question from the audience. Uh-oh. Is there a difference between the current state's attorney domestic violence division and the bureau that you are proposing? There is. So right now, right now, uh, sex assault domestic violence is, with, is within the criminal bureau. And it needs, to, it needs to be elevated to its own. It's almost like becoming a cabinet position for the president or something. You can think of it that way. And so that will make sure that it has it has a much greater set of priorities. And additionally, it will ensure that all of the all of the uh, sex assault and domestic violence uh, cases are under under the roof of that bureau. And of course, the misdemeanor domestic violence um, cases will be handled under that same roof because it will be a a distinct pipeline for ASAs to. Uh, uh, to join our office and, and thrive in our office. Can I ask one quick question, too, um, of my own? Well, when you say more training, more training, more training, what does that look like within the Cook County State's Attorney's Office? Yeah, so in, that, in these case situations, it will come from more senior attorneys uh, providing that training to, to younger attorneys, as well as from the advocacy community about how we can best work with, work with survivors and, and how they should best handle their cases. Like one thing we can do, for example, that I think will really help is a 
failure of prosecuting these cases, as I mentioned, is consistently requiring the person to relive the experience over and over again. And what we want to instead be able to do is when we have a survivor or a witness, that they, we simply videotape their interview at the police station. And then they present that to felony review. They don't have to sit there at the police station for 12 hours and, and retell their story over and over again. And also they'll be able to watch that before they testify again as well. So they don't have to consistently, consistently do that. Okay, next question from the audience. Police officers are one of the biggest offenders of domestic violence and certain unspoken, mm, sorry, you know what, if I can't, oh, cer codes, and certain unspoken codes within police departments may stop an offender's colleagues from taking their violence seriously or, uh, or recognizing there is even violence at all in some cases. What kind of pushback do you expect from the Chicago Police Department when it comes to its own members being uh, perpetrators of domestic violence? And will those unspoken rules be a barrier to your plan, do you think? Well, it is, it is no secret that there is a code of silence within the Chicago Police Department, every police department, like there is in like there is in nearly every occupation. Um, however, I have been encouraged as of late where you've had police officers in a few cases at the federal level have testified against other, other officers as of late. So at least, at least it seems that that is um, becoming a bit more, a bit more acceptable. Uh, one, one other thing I would point out is that the consent decree, they have a lot of, a lot of, um, uh, they have a system in there to provide mental health to, to the police officers. I mean, uh, I read, I, I remember reading something, I hope I don't misquote it, that the average, the average Chicago police officer goes through a roughly 100 traumatic incidents throughout the course of their career, and the average person goes through something like three. So when you see that, it is clear that Chicago police officers do need to, um, as any, and any police officer needs to, needs to uh, go through that type of, of mental health Counseling, I think anybody would who has to has a traumatic job. But what like would the that. state's attorney's office role specifically be in making sure that these police officers, the crimes that are committed, are actually reported to you? Yeah, you know, no, I mean, that, how that do you do that? That is a difficult question. All I all I can certainly say is that we will certainly encourage officers to to bring those cases to us, and we will prosecute them like every other every other uh, like any other case. And I say that as somebody who prosecuted police officers as an assistant state's attorney. So. That will at least be the culture that I will build within that office. Uh, last question from the audience. Many of us have received harassment training that's outdated at best and victim blaming at worst. What can we do beyond further workplace employee training to make sure necessary changes are made? I'm assuming that that means within the state's attorney's office, or is that what we're talking about here, that sort of training? I'm going to go with yes on that. Yes, let's say yes. yes on that. Okay, so within the office, if there is harassment training, we've talked about training here, yeah. um, you know, uh, what, what could, would you do beyond further workplace employee training to make sure necessary changes are made? Well, first off, I would say that it is part of the, the culture of the Cook County State's Attorney's Office needs to be that that sort of thing is not uh, is is not acceptable within our office. That we are that we run a very professional office, and as someone who worked there worked there previously, I can certainly tell you that that is not has not always been the case. Uh, so so first part is a uh, 
we have to make sure that that is the culture and that when we hear about harassing behavior, that that type of behavior is handled uh, swiftly, to say the least, swiftly and firmly. I have one more question. I'm sorry, I have to ask, but I'll be okay. quick. It doesn't, someone in the audience says, it doesn't seem like you uh, know what the victim's constitutional rights are. Are you familiar with the um, ASA's obligations to victims, especially regarding communication? Is that something you need to read up on? Well, I mean, I think it's something we can all learn more about, but I know it is something that where the victim needs to be consulted, for example, before, before their case gets reduced uh, and, 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 and about what's going on with the case. And I can certainly tell you in, uh, in Amy's case that didn't, that didn't happen. So it is certainly something that's not happening across the office now, and it needs to be. Okay. Um, I think that's, that is our time. Bill Conway, Wonderful. Democratic candidate for Cook County State's Attorney. Thank you so much. Thank you. Absolutely. Judge Coco, I hope I didn't embarrass you too much uh, back there. Perfect. Oh, and that water bottle is yours to oh, take. <laughs> okay, thank you, Bill. Um, next up is current Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox, but I am not sure. Yes, good. She's here. Yay. Um, State's Attorney Fox, how are you? being here. Um, I'm, I will just quickly reiterate what our, um, uh, number one, we want to stay on topic, um, and and we're going to do that. And number two, um, this is about a 20 to 25 minute conversation, and um, at the end of which we will take some uh, questions from the audience. Does that sound good? Sounds perfect. Okay. Um, First, some people would say there's been a visible, tangible deprioritization of gender-based violence in your administration, including willingness to divest from grant-funded projects like Voices for colleges and universities, as well as removal of relevant people in high-level positions in SADV, the State's Attorney's Domestic Violence Division, and HT, Human Trafficking. What, if anything, will change in your second term if you are reelected? Well, first, I want to start with domestic violence and sexual assault has always been a priority, a top priority of this administration. We have, as most administrations do, come in and make changes, but it doesn't mean that the priorities have shifted. As I have shared uh, with this group and others, you know, as a survivor myself, it is always top of mind to me. One of the things that I did when I first um, ran for this office even before winning uh, the election, was meet with uh, SADV advocates to hear what the issues and concerns were from the community before I got in. I made a commitment to the community that I would meet with them personally on a quarterly basis, and we have done that for the last almost four years. And so to say that it has been deprioritized, I personally meet with this community with our leadership on a regular basis. And as a result of those meetings, it, we've I've learned a lot, and I think we've worked in partnership a great deal on how we can be most effective in advocating for victims of sexual assault and domestic violence. That has meant learning about what information would be helpful to the communities we serve, whether that's around data and the prioritization of data, the hiring of our gender-based policy advisor, the hiring of our immigration policy advisor to help us with U visas and uh, victims who have come from undocumented communities. 
It is also meant shifting some of our grant funding to where we can meet our capacity. So are you, does that mean also are you willing to reapply for grants in partnership with Absolutely. advocacy organizations? Yeah, and I think part of what we did when we first got there was see what was working and what wasn't. And from a capacity issue from the state's attorney's office internally. So yes, we want to be supportive of grant funding, not only for ourselves, but for our community partners. What's your top policy priority and planned first operational shift uh, for a second term? Around SADV? SADV and yes. Yeah, I think one, we want to make sure that we have our victims or our survivors feeling recognized and heard and having some teeth to uh, their rights. Secondarily, we want to be able to expand the work that we've been doing with our consent clinics and our vertical prosecution of sexual assault cases. Third, we want to make sure that as we move forward with efforts around bond reform, we're being responsive to the needs of the DV community, which are unique, um, pose unique challenges than other priorities or other populations. So, so those are some of our biggest priorities. Um, there's an epidemic of violence against trans women of color. What is your plan for handling that specifically? One of the things that I am proud of, in addition to those quarterly meetings that we've talked about, I just talked about, I've met uh, on two occasions with black trans women, uh, both downtown and on the south side. What I had said to the groups that we had been meeting with regularly was wanting to make sure that we diversify the people who are sitting at those tables and the unique challenges that are there. And when I sit in those quarterly meetings, that population wasn't there. They weren't there. And not to say that they were excluded, but they pose unique challenges and where, where do we operate with inclusivity? And so we went and we met out at Howard Brown to sit in here and some of the challenges, one, feeling as though um, they aren't seen, heard, respected, understood. Also fear and real concern about engagement with our law enforcement partners. I heard some awful stories about you know, women who were coming in to report sexual assaults um, who were treated in what can only be described as inhumane treatment. And so we have sat and talked. One of the things that we did with the previous superintendent, and I have not yet had an opportunity with uh, Superintendent Beck, about what the policies and practices were for engagement with trans women or the trans community um, with law enforcement, such that they are not fearful of coming forward. Because the underreporting, we already have an underreporting issue related to sexual assault, um, but underreporting, particularly in the trans community and the black trans community, um, is uh, quite disproportionate because of the fear and the barriers that we put up in law enforcement. So that remains a priority. Um, and we continue to engage with them, and then we'll continue to engage or go back to the, it won't be Superintendent Beck because he's not long-term, but our partners in CPD and our suburban police departments to address it. With that, uh, when it comes to Chicago, first and foremost, um, the relationship between the Chicago Police Department, most notably the Fraternal Order of Police, but I think it's safe to say a vast majority of the police department in your office right now are strained. So with that in mind, first, how do you plan to improve relationships uh, in a second term with the Chicago Police Department in particular, and then going back to talking to departments about how they receive uh, trans women of color in particular, what do those discussions look like after that? Yeah, I always have to make sure we are talking about the right groups. The relationship between our office and the FOP is absolutely strained. Absolutely strained. The relationship with law enforcement partners, they're witnesses on every case. 
they, they, they don't engage with me. So the politics of the Fraternal Order of Police and me are over here. The work that the law enforcement partners do on the ground with our advocates, um, with our victim witness units, with the people that we work with is strong. They are the ones that are out there gathering the information, the first responders who are sitting with them. Um, some of the things that we are doing is to strengthen that relationship that isn't strained is making sure that we're working in partnership. One of the things we did was we created our first of its kind uh, felony review manual. What we were seeing was a lot of tension at the felony review level. We had victims who were sitting and waiting um, for hours at a time for us to come out and have a case reviewed for approval. So we put together this manual so that the police can know what we were looking for, ask the questions, do the groundworks before we were bringing in victims to sit and wait, um, and clarifying what our expectations were for law enforcement. Um, it's the work that we do around the MDT, the multidisciplinary teams, where people are showing up and getting to know one another. And so I think for us, it's important to work in partnership, not against. And so I, wherever I go, I reject that rhetoric that is often put on from people who don't know the relationship um, because it's just not fair, it's not real, from the people who are on the ground. But wanting to be a supportive partner to them so that we can work together collaboratively on behalf of survivors. I, I hear you, um, I, I, but I do know myself when I've dealt with not just the FOP, but police officers, um, I do think there is some element of strain though with the rank and file as well, just based on my own personal conversations I've had I, with officers. And so, so, but with I mean, that, I, I mean, with I, that. I, again, I, I, there are 13,000 police officers. My imagination is that perhaps the few that you've talked to say that. But what I know just from the work that I see in the courtrooms, that's not the case. They're out there working. And where there's frustrations, we've tried to open doors to be able to say, what, are, what do you need? The felony review guidebook, great. The trainings, great. How do we work in partnership, not about personality, but about the work? And what I know about our hardworking men and women of this, the Chicago Police Department and our suburban departments, they're just as dedicated to this work as the people who work in the state's attorney's office. And so the strain that you speak of, it's not me being oblivious. I'm, I know noise and media, but I also know what I see every day in the courtrooms that are going on. And these men and women are working hard. Okay, let's talk about data. Um, misdemeanor data is not currently collected or published in large part as I mentioned with Mr. Conway, due to the uneven working relationship between the state's attorney's office, the clerk, chief judge's office. What is your plan for improving that or solving that? I don't know if it's a relationship issue as opposed to a capacity issue. This is a clerk's office, which, you know, God bless the candidates who are running for it, um, <laughs> still uses carbon paper, like mimeograph paper. Hold it down. Which, by the way, was not supposed to be the case by this year. But yeah. we'll just let that be for another it's time. It's like we thought the Jetsons were going to have flying cards. We still don't have, like, paper. Uh, but the good news is we've been working, and I know some of the advocates have heard me say this, for a really long time to get a memorandum of understanding where we can get that information direct. And I am pleased to say that all of the lawyers, there's an abundance of lawyers who have been working on this have finally finalized that memorandum of understanding so that we can get that. The state's attorney's office only, the information that we publish and share is data that comes from our case management system. So it's based on our inputs. We don't have a misdemeanor case management system, which is why we don't publish that data because we don't have it. We have what we call hand counts that every month there's like a tally of what was charged and what was disposed of. 
hand counts aren't the most accurate way to count because you're not able to see the flow of that particular case. It's what case was opened or closed in that month, not when was it opened, what was it charged with at the time. So I'm very optimistic that within the next couple of months we'll be able to have that misdemeanor data shared because I do believe that that is the greatest area of growth for us, is knowing the trends with misdemeanor data. So regarding data then, what are data, what do you think you need to know that you don't know and what does the public need to know that they don't know? Yeah, I think people need to know how to track cases. What does a case look like when it comes in and what is it ultimately disposed of? Are we charging as misdemeanors and they're being reduced, or charging as felonies and they're being reduced in misdemeanors, why? Are cases being dismissed um, at higher rates? If so, why? The questions that are asked by looking at the data lead you to solutions and not at, without being able to pinpoint. And some things are different depending on where you are. Skokie and Rolling Meadows may have very different trends than we see in the city or in Markham. So the data will allow for us to see where we can have greater impact and where we may need to put resources. Regarding victims' rights, um, how do you believe victims' constitutional rights should be enforced and what should be, and what remedies um, should occur when those rights are violated? Yeah, I think victims' rights should absolutely be enforced and that there should be measures of sanctions if those rights are willfully and intentionally violated. Uh, sanctions, what do those look like to you? Uh, court sanctions, I mean, I, I, it depends on what the, the violation is. Um, I think the more severe the violation, the more severe the sanction should be. Talking in hypotheticals, it's hard to say, but I think you have to hold people accountable when we're not acknowledging people's rights. Right now, so you're in you know, office. What are your thoughts on how victims' rights are being um, respected right now? Do you feel that your office is doing a good job with that overall? Do you think there's room for improvement? I always think there's room for improvement. I mean, we have a large organization. We have hundreds of people who work for us. And what we try to do is make sure we have the training uh, that everybody is operating with the same mission, vision, and values. But I also recognize that you will have people in any organization who are not um, operating in that level. So what we want to do is know who those folks are. If it's a matter of retraining, retraining. If it's a matter of you probably don't need to work here, you shouldn't work here. Um, and sometimes you don't know this until an issue arises to the top and it's someone's been harmed as a result. And so with any big institution, our goal is to make sure that we're putting the policies in place, the training in place, where we create a condition where people don't do that. And then when they do it, you have to hold them accountable. In the questionnaire to you, uh, we asked you about... Uh, let me rephrase. In a question asked to you about the felony review unit, you mentioned that the... FRU's approval rate for possession of stolen vehicles has had increased, but can you tell us about the approval rate for domestic violence and SA from 2016 to 2018? Um, I don't have that off the top of my head. What I will say is looking at approval rates, particularly in SADV cases, SA cases in particular, it's based on the individual facts and circumstances of that case what we, and the willingness of victims um, to come forth or what the evidence may be, but I can certainly get that for him. Okay. Um, what is your strategy on implementing your proposed plans knowing that you're working with what some consider to be an indifferent judiciary and uh, public defender's office that some believe is indifferent to victim safety? Anything different that you would do? Anything 
any strategies you would implement that aren't already in being implemented? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hesitate to say that folks are indifferent. I think what happens is when you work in systems, there becomes kind of a mechanics to it where people are processing and not recognizing the humanity of the work that we're doing. Part of that for me, again, is why we have these quarterly meetings to be in proximity to people who are closest to these issues. What we have tried to do, um, even with the public defenders um, and the judges, as we look at things like bond reform, are say, hey, there's policy and then there's impact. How are we measuring impact? How do we know that the people who are the end users of our systems are not being further harmed and slowing that process down? So we meet on a regular basis. Again, being informed by what I hear from the advocacy community, community, I can bring that to the table as part of those discussions. But I think sometimes you just have to move forward and lead on issues and bring them along rather than say, we're all just kind of mired down in what we normally do and just keep doing what we do. I'm sure you're aware that most everybody here is, is are members of or very closely connected to the advocacy community. Yeah. With that, you say that your division, along with CPD and the mayor's DV council, has developed a new protocol for responding to DV cases in Chicago. But would you be surprised to hear that the advocacy community was unaware of this? And can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I think that question was more speaking to not something that we created, but the MDT, the multidisciplinary teams that existed even before I got there. Okay. Um, what, moving forward, though, with these three entities um, might change in terms of better collaboration, better uh, outreach? Anything? You know, I think what we're doing is... Part of the MDT's purpose is to be able to learn from one another of how we are supporting one another and where gaps are. And I think having an ongoing dialogue and having people being able to confront and hold accountable if, if things aren't going well. Um, being a part of a team means that you know, you're not one above the other. Uh, and so our effort is going to be to continue to, as we do our work, inform the people um, in the advocacy community of what it's what we're doing, hear their feedback and adjust. So that relationship is important. Yes, absolutely. Okay, I, we're about to go to questions from the audience, but before that, um, your prosecutu <laughs> prosecutorial pro processes and priorities seem difficult at times to determine when reviewing charged cases and public statements. If you're elected to a second term, how will you try to add clarity and consistency to your office if you believe um, that needs improvement? Look, I think transparency is important. I think from our perspective, particularly how we review these cases, we want to take a trauma-informed approach to the work that we do um, and have that as, as our baseline. What I said earlier, when I came into this office, we didn't have a mission statement. We didn't have visions or values. I worked here um, for 12 years, and I was very proud of the work that we did. But when you talk about clarity of purpose, it's important to be able to say, what is, what is your mission? And how do you seek to achieve that? What are your goals? Our mission is for healthy, safe, thriving communities that encompasses all of this work. And so our, how we communicate that, how we engage on, from every point of contact with our office, whether it's victim witness, our attorneys, our administrative staff who answers the phone, the people at intake and how they engage with people who walk into their office, making sure that everyone is aligned and when they are not accountability around it. There are many, though, in the advocacy community who say it's difficult to get data in spite of, in spite of, of your remarks in the past saying, you know, that you're transparent. It's different, difficult to get return phone calls. Um, 
more accurate sexual assault and DV data, et cetera. Um, is this something you've heard before? And Yeah, we've talked about this, and I, it's an interesting point because there was very little felony data that was out before we got here. We created the first ever open data portal in the country in a prosecutor's office. What we also realized, though, is not everybody's a data geek. And by not everybody being a data geek, me. I am not a data geek. I don't know how to read this data. So what we did was bring in Matthew Saney, who was our chief data officer, to be able to put together a dashboard that had never existed before. And while this is a new process, we wanted to make it user-friendly. We also put together what we call Hacking for Justice, which is a two-day program that allows for advocates, activists, researchers to come in and be trained on how to use our data. And so it's not that we don't want the data. We believe wholeheartedly that the public should have that data. We should make it readily accessible in a way that hadn't been done before. And that's what we're trying to do. Uh, in your questionnaire, you mentioned officer-involved domestic violence cases should be handled by a special prosecutor. Um, anecdotally, we know the cases are still being handled by second-level assignment in DV court. So what has been the obstacle in implementing your goal of a special prosecutor in those cases? Yeah, the presiding judge has ruled that bringing in a special prosecutor absent an actual conflict is not how he's going to allow it. I can't appoint a special prosecutor. It has to be done by the judiciary. Okay, uh, <clears throat> audience question. Again, you mentioned... Um, an expectation that ASAs would volunteer in DV shelters in your response to a question. Where and when has that happened? Can you tell us yeah. what types of volunteer activities have ASAs been involved with? Thank you. That's a great question. We're really proud of the fact that part of our evaluation of our assistance is not just on what they do in the courtroom, but what they do in the community. And so our ASAs, not only in domestic violence, but also in juvenile court in 26th Street, have volunteered in domestic violence shelters throughout the year. We have a bi-weekly uh, newsletter that we publish online called our Spotlight that highlights the work that they've done. And so they've done it on multiple occasions, um, including drives around the holidays and during the summer. Uh, you talk about DV and SA. What are you doing to improve your efforts on human trafficking? Has it taken a back seat? Um, do you have a plan to other priorities? Yeah. Do you have a plan to do more? And if so, what does that plan look like? Yeah, we're really proud of our efforts around human trafficking. I, I will uh, commend my predecessor for her urgency and efficacy around these issues. It is still continues to be a priority for us. We're a part of a number of human trafficking task force, task forces uh, where we work collaboratively, whether with the sheriff's office or the U.S. attorney's office, to build strong cases around networks. And so it remains a top priority for us, and we're glad of the partnerships that we have on both the county and federal level. Okay, uh, another audience question. In his question session, Bill Conway suggested elevating DV and sex crimes to its own bureau. What are your thoughts about this? Is it something you're thinking about doing yourself? Um, I think the nature of the work is, is specialized and certainly needs to be specialized because of uh, our victims, the work, the people who do it. It's one of the reasons that we have created a domestic violence track where we want people who want to do this work to do this work, not people who feel mandated, who don't have a commitment to it. What we find is that we get worse outcomes when people are sitting there counting the days that they're out of the unit. Um, so I think there are things that you can do um, around lateral prosecutions, for example, on consent cases that we've rolled out in our suburban courthouses 
that still put the focus and emphasis there. Um, with the resources that we have, creating additional bureaus um, is tough, but it's not a bad idea. Um, what specifically have you done? Another audience question, and I'm keeping an eye on my watch too as well. I know you have a hard stop. No worries. Uh, what specifically have you done this far to prioritize victim safety in the context of bail reform? Yeah, one of the things is looking at the research, looking at the data. We know that we had an issue around bail holistically, broadly. We had a system in Cook County where we had been under a federal consent decree for almost 40 years because of overcrowding at the jail. That was real. Um, I tell people I went to the jail in 1988 as a junior in high school um, when we were under said consent decree and it was overcrowded. Um, as part of a scared straight program, it scared me straight into being a lawyer and a prosecutor. <laughs> The reality is we were still doing that. Um, and we had people who were there for nonviolent offenses who were languishing and people who were charged with violent offenses who could bond their way out. So we were trying to right-size that. What we also don't want to do, however, is put people at risk. Public safety is the first and foremost priority. So looking at the data to see where those gaps are, if there are gaps in DV, how do we close those gaps and find the right measures to make sure that we're not putting survivors at risk. This last question, um, and, and again, thank you for being here. Of course. Uh, from the audience, it has several questions within question, and I believe it has to do with the James Mather case. Do you find it acceptable to allow your ASAs to lie to survivors who were strong enough to come forward? Do you feel your office has any integrity at all, specifically when a prosecutor under your leadership offered a plea bargain for a simple battery to an offender who had two DV cases from two different women within a span of weeks and was caught with six firearms just weeks afterwards. Many questions there within under one umbrella. In a statement, yeah. I mean, I listen, I can't speak to the specifics of that case without having that information in front of me. I will say what I've always said, that this is about making sure our communities are safe and the prioritization of these uh, these types of cases. I can tell you that no one in our office wants anyone to go out and cause harm. It happens. We're not perfect. This is a human endeavor. And we want to make sure that people are being trained and know how to evaluate cases and use their discretion appropriately. And we should not be offering cases or resolution to cases without talking to our victims. I don't believe that anyone should be in a position of lying to a victim um, or lying about a process. I mean, we take that very seriously. Is there anything else, this is my real last question, anything more that you would do or change when it comes to um, making sure there is some oversight um, with charges being handed down? For instance, we talked about offering a plea deal in this case. Is Bill Conway talked about having, at the very least, charges um, or not approved by a, a supervisor. Is there something that you're thinking about doing where there would be another pair of eyes at yeah. least reviewing charges in yeah. DV and SA, et cetera, cases? I think we have to make sure that as people are exercising their discretion, and we want to give our assistants the ability to have discretion, that as they're pleading down, the expectation was that they should have been going to a supervisor to see that, particularly because we have a lot of younger assistants who may not have had enough time to discern that this is, might be the way to go or not. And so making sure that we have supervisory oversight before reducing something to a misdemeanor um, is a practice that should have been happening and that we're making sure happens now. What we want to do, again, is 
we have a lot of supervisors and a lot of people who do this work, it's an office that's pretty large, is make sure that we're holding them accountable. And that happens not just from the line assistant. I think people, their frustration becomes from the line assistant. That person reports up to someone. That person gets evaluated by someone. And making sure that our supervisory and our management folks are accountable for the work that happens on the ground. And if that's not happening, it's not enough to simply say that person who made the call is wrong. The people who manage them also have to be held to account. And are you doing that in some cases? You are holding people accountable. Oh, absolutely. Okay. All right. Um, I think we're out of time. Thank you. You know what? I forgot to give you a water bottle. Would you like one? It's right under here. Was it filled with water? I was like, I was parched this whole time. <laughs> Thank Sorry you all. No, no worries. Thank you all very all right. much. Thank you very much, Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox, running, of course, again for re-election on the Democratic ticket. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Be careful. I dropped a question. Don't slip. Thank you. I promise I'll offer the water bottle to the next candidate. <laughs> Up front. Um, Our next candidate, I can tell you, is Donna Moore, at least our next scheduled candidate. And thank you for your questions, by the way. Um, It's super helpful, especially because so many of you, this is what you live and breathe. So I appreciate it. It's so quiet, isn't it? <laughs> we don't mean it to be. There's like this hush. Oh. Hi. Hi. I'm Dana Kozlow. Hi, Dana. Nice Donna to meet Moore. you. Nice to meet you. This is your water bottle. Oh. I failed to offer it to State's Attorney Fox prior to her um, questioning, so okay, I want to make sure you have more water than you might even need. Okay, hold on. <laughs> I have to put my glasses on because I, you guys are all a blur to me right at the moment. You and me both. So... So um, I, I think it was probably explained to you, but I think I just want to reiterate. So this is uh, a 20 to 25-minute conversation with questions, and at the end of, of it, we'll take some questions from the, the folks in the audience. Okay. Okay? Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> um, okay, Donna. Uh, first question. What will um, be your first office policy priority and first operational shift on gender-based violence when taking office if you are elected? Well, I think two, th- two things. One thing is that I think the office needs new leadership um, and needs to empower the assistants that are in the courtrooms to actually make decisions about cases and to make sure that there is a policy in place that they're making the right decisions and that our assistants are sensitized to gender-based violence crime. When, when you say a policy in yeah. place, does that mean training? Does that mean a guideline, a handbook? What does that mean? I, it for sure means training. I don't know. You know, my sense is that people, you know, you spend all sorts of time on a handbook and then nobody looks at it. So I think it comes from leadership at the top of the office as to, to you know, a lot of times what happens, and, and it happened more 
20 years ago than it's happening today, but people brush off gender-based crime and people brush off domestic crime. And so we have to sensitize not only the office, but also law enforcement. And so those two things need to work hand in hand, and that is something I think that comes from leadership from the top. If, if I may ask my own question here, you know, you talk about people brushing off uh, um, these these types of these crimes, and I know over the last 20, 25, 30 years, there's been significant progress made in, in the prosecution, et cetera, and the awareness. Um, but for you personally, where would you prioritize gender-based violence in, you know, in your uh, crimes that you're, you would want your office to be vigilant in prosecuting? Well, look, I think overall what the state's attorney needs to do is to hold people accountable for their crime. Now, accountability has a lot of different definitions to it, but in part, my job is to make sure that our most vulnerable communities are protected. And when you talk about vulnerable communities, you're talking about, in part, gender-based crime um, and domestic crimes, because the, the, these, this is a group of people that feel that they don't have a voice. And part of the job of the state's attorney is to give people a voice and to give them a voice and to be believed because so much of our system, I mean, look, even with the recent prosecution that we just saw in New York with Harvey Weinstein, you saw very, very powerful women in some instances believing that they were powerless. And so, look, you know, I, um, I came through the legal system at a time when there weren't a lot of women um, certainly a lot of women as prosecutors, um, and even in private law firms. And so I'm sensitive to how people, minority groups, are looked at, whether they're believed, whether they're taken seriously. And so for me, it is a, I have an overall priority to make sure that everybody, all victims are treated fairly, but of course a special um, view with those groups of victims that have been traditionally um, disregarded. Speaking of, of, of that, um, there's an epidemic of violence against trans women of color. What is your plan to help those women? Listen, my, my plan is to help every victim, um, regardless of who they are, how they identify. So it is, it is again, getting back to two, two things. One is sensitivity and training of your assistant state's attorneys. Two is making sure that you're working with law enforcement because those are the two vital parts in the system. And unless you have those two groups working together, you're gonna to get bad results. You know, we've talked about, um, I know in your questions, you talked about felony review. You know, one of the things, you know, felony review is really the first introduction, if you can call it that, that a victim is gonna to have to the state's attorney's office. And so, in particular, you know, your felony review assistants, in most cases, unless you get a supervisor, are young assistants. They haven't even been in the felony trial courts. They don't know how to charge a felony. They haven't been in preliminary hearings. And so the, one of the questions that I have asked myself is maybe we need to think about how we staff felony review. Because to me, it's one of the most important parts of the office because it's, it's the initial charging. And sometimes if you get that wrong, then a whole lot of other things go wrong in a case. So 
whether it's a, a trans minority woman or whether it's any victim of sexual assault or, or domestic violence. I think um, part of what has to get transformed in the office is the felony review unit. Uh, based on your questionnaire, your understanding of the funding streams available for this type of work seem to be actually different from what is actually available or practicable. Have you done any more thinking on what might be practical in terms of funding a robust response to gender-based violence, both with the, with the advocacy community and as the county's chief prosecutor? Well, I think, you know, you often hear that you don't have funds to do certain things. Uh, and I think there are a number of answers to that. Um, first is, you know, I would like to do more public-private partnerships. I think you, we always hear about companies that are looking to help. Well, let's get them on board to help. And I think as an, look, I've spent my whole legal career as an advocate. That's what I do. And so what I'd like to do is advocate, and advocate that we get some funding from places where we traditionally don't see funding, but you know we're told that people want to help. But the other thing about funding is, one, you have to advocate for your budget for the Cook County State's Attorney's Office in front of the county board. And you know, you hear that you know Sheriff Dart takes six, seven hours to advocate for a budget, often at odds with the county board, and yet the state's attorney, um, because of course she's a protege of President Preckwinkle, goes in and whatever the county board says to her, that's what she's willing to live with and not advocate for more budgetary needs. And the third thing is that we have to take the budget we have and not waste it. So, you know, there, the civil division has been gutted, and what's happening is that a lot of the civil cases are being referred out to private law firms at double the county rate. Um, the head of the civil division who was doing that was uh, patted on the back as he quietly left the office and wasn't referred for prosecution, potential prosecution, by the attorney general's office. We saw just last week a case come down where we, the taxpayers, oh, I'm sorry. I think we're getting a little okay, off topic here. <laughs> okay, sorry. Um, that's, I didn't want to so rudely question. interrupt. Okay, okay. well, we're going to try to stay very much on okay. topic because we have a finite amount of time. Um, getting back to gender-based violence, sexual assault, et cetera, domestic violence, how do you believe the victim's constitutional rights should be enforced? And what should the remedies be when victims' rights are violated within the office? when it comes to how cases are handled? I'm not, I'm not sure I'm understanding you. In terms of their not being heard or the charges not being correct, or are you talking about situations where um, a victim of domestic violence potentially acts in self-defense? I'm, I'm not sure what you're getting at. Uh, not self-defense. Talking okay. more about um, uh, uh, how they are informed of charges. Mm, okay. Talking about um, you know possibly also being consulted. You mm -hmm. know when it comes to you know the details yeah. that could okay. right that okay. sort of those sort of constitutional rights when it comes to once their case is brought before you. Okay. Um, look, as state's attorney, and again, this, this, this is leadership from the top, and it's also training your assistants to the extent it's not being done. When you have a case in your courtroom, the, the first person that you need to talk to is your victim, victim's families, if, that's, if, if they're involved. So before you take an action on a case, you need to get the agreement of your victim. And you know, what is happening in many cases, anecdotally, is that the victims aren't being consulted. 
whether, it, and, and in particular on, on cases where you're talking about potentially reducing uh, or taking a felony sex case and reducing it to a misdemeanor if it's a gender-based violence case or, or whatever. So the problem is, is sometimes if you think that there's evidentiary issues, right? You want to call your victim in and you want to say, look, here's what we're dealing with. Be transparent if as a prosecutor you don't think you can prove your case or you think it's going to be a tough case or explain to your victim what it's going to look like because you have to prepare your victims. You know, be, going to trial is a tough thing and you want to make sure that your victim is, is able to do that. So there needs to be communication with your victim. There needs to be buy-in from your victim and oftentimes if it's a young victim from your victim's family. You know, you need to communicate with your police officers too. That isn't happening right now. So especially when it comes to reducing the case, um, or even with, with pretrial detention, oftentimes our victims aren't being told that the state's attorney isn't advocating for pretrial detention, in particular in domestic cases. So and you think that needs to all be out in the open um, and, and, and communicated with the victim? Absolutely. So bringing up uh, pretrial detention, what does it look like to you, and how will you assess risk when making a recommendation to the judge? So pretrial detention, I don't think right now that the state's attorney's office is advocating in cases where there are dangerous people. I don't think that we are getting advocates to argue for pretrial detention. Uh, part of it is because, again, the policies that are, are, they're trying to impose are to um, lessen the jail population. And so because people don't want to, our, our electeds don't want to pay for the cost of Cook County Jail, they would rather have our communities pay the cost of letting a violent offender back out on the street pending trial. And so, you know, you, you, there's a balance. Everybody wants to talk about bail reform. You know, I find that the criminal justice system can't be at the macro level. You can't say absolute, because we don't have absolutes in the criminal justice system. What you have is each individual case with each individual victim, with their own story, with each defendant. And as a prosecutor, you have to evaluate that. You have to look somebody in the eye and try to make the best decision you can. Interestingly enough, on the Democratic side, uh, none of my opponents have been in felony review, and none of my opponents have been in the felony trial courts. And I don't know how you make those judgments and those decisions until and unless you have been through it. So when it comes to domestic violence cases then, um, how would you instruct your ASAs, for instance, when talking about pretrial detention to argue for it? Because a lot of times, you know, oh, it's one, oh, he's, he's never had a prior, or there's been one minor prior, you know, instance. Um, but as we all know, that sometimes doesn't matter when it comes ultimately to the safety of victims of domestic violence. So um, how would you instruct your ASAs or the prosecutors to, to, you know, to kind of really go over the record or lack of one with a fine tube comb and compare that with the facts of the current existing case when it comes to pretrial detention and charges for that matter, but that's a well, little just, different. You know, it, it's been pointed out, um, I think, by our current state's attorney that, of course, the ultimate decision um, is the judge's decision. But when your prosecutors stand mute in a courtroom, the judge doesn't have anything to go on. And so 
you have to, it, it's a lot of factors, and as you just pointed out, uh, uh, the absence of a prior violent criminal history is only one factor to take into account. And so your assistants need to be empowered because right now many, many bond decisions are coming from the central office, that the assistants in the courtroom are being told what to do and they're not able to exercise their own judgment. And you know, you have to trust your assistants. They're at the front lines. They're the ones that are interviewing the witnesses. They're the ones that are talking to the victim. And they're the ones to best make the decision. And if they need help, there's a supervisor, there's a deputy, and so forth. But they should be empowered to make the decisions and talk to their victim and understand what in this particular case would scream for pretrial detention. Um, in your questionnaire, you indicated you're not con uh, committed to a gender-based violence GBV policy director position, which has been in existence for a couple of decades. Um, if you are not committed, Maybe that's changed, but if you are not, how will you ensure active collaboration with the advocacy community and best practices for prosecution? So I, I, I thought the question was, would you hire new? Um, and my answer is this. Look, I'm not going to promise anything right now that I don't know that I can fulfill. And I'm also not going to promise something that I, that I can't live up to. And is it better to spend the money not at a supervisory level, but with better assistance on the ground. Because we have supervisors in the office. We have deputy, we have wing supervisors, we have, there's one sitting right there, my old wing supervisor. We have deputies, we have uh, head of uh, criminal, the criminal division, you have the first assistant, you have the chief deputy. I don't want to be top heavy, because in a lot of organizations you find top heavy. I want to make sure first that I have really good trained assistants in the domestic violence units helping our victims of gender-based violence. And then, yes, if, if the need is there, absolutely. But I don't want to promise something that I'm not going to live up to, because then nobody believes you. Okay. That's, a, that's a political decision, and, and I'm going to make legal-based decisions. Um, should we take questions from the audience? Or Okay, because I know that we're, you know, I have my little time cues over <laughs> oh. there. Oh, is there a so, timer over there? Well, okay. there's a, a, time a person, person oh, yes, okay, and we, I want to make sure I leave, I leave time for questions from folks who are here. Okay. Hmm. Question number one. What would your zero-tolerance policy for violent crimes look like? Well, a zero tolerance policy for violent crimes is you have to hold people accountable and you charge um, with the evidence you have. I have no tolerance for violent crime. So I'm not sure if the question is, you know, do you prosecute? What do you prosecute? I, um, you prosecute based on the evidence and you charge based on the evidence. And people don't get to walk, and they certainly uh, don't get to walk pre-trial if they've committed a violent crime, because that is really affecting our most vulnerable communities. But violent crime can have so many definitions to mm -hmm. so many different people. So I think maybe the question might mean, potentially, um, zero tolerance, meaning at what threshold is see, there okay. absolutely no, you know, I mean, would you argue, you know, do flips for, for pre-trial detention, that yeah. sort of thing? Well, look, you know, we know from the recent um, bond policies that got released from Chief Judge Evans, we know that there were whole categories of 
what I considered to be violent crimes that weren't considered to be violent crimes by Chief Judge Evans to support his statistics that bond reform is actually not causing any harm to the communities and any safety issues. So do I think a, you know, let's go down to the lower end of that. Do I think a criminal sexual abuse is a violent crime? Yes, I do. Do I, a battery is a violent crime. So it is, um, I don't have, Tolerance, if people commit a crime, whether it's a battery, an ag battery, an attempt murder, you know, go through the spectrum, you have to hold them accountable. The question is how? The question is what kinds of things do you argue for? The question is let's look at that person, the defendant, and say, is this someone that needs to go to prison as a result of the crime? Is this someone that can be rehabilitated? Do we find some other method? But what we don't do, so it's, it's not one set of no. criteria fits all with that either. No, and what we don't do is, you know, there was a, a study um, that was reported in the Tribune where um, domestic abusers were getting out not just one time on bail, but three and four and five times on bail to rebatter their victims. That is not acceptable. So what would you do to change, just quickly, what would you do to change that? I mean, would you implement some sort of, I mean, I know it's complicated, it's not as simple as you say and it happens always, but would you push... Sorry, would you push for a minimum, you know, threshold in that regard? Let's say, well, this is his second offense, and on second offense, absolutely he should be held. You, you know, I don't like, I was in um, the U.S. Attorney's Office, and, you know, we had man, mandatory sentencing guidelines, which, um, and we have some in the state as well, and I don't know that those necessarily work, because you may have somebody on a first offense that needs to get held pretrial. So that's the point of the criminal justice system. It is a case-by-case -case system. And just because it's somebody's first offense and just because there's no priors doesn't mean that based on what happened, you would not advocate for pretrial detention. Okay. Currently, the Cook County State's Attorney's Office meets with advocates quarterly to learn about work happening on the ground. How often would you meet with advocates and what would you hope to learn? So... You know, I guess I, I'm looking for the advocates to tell me if they need to meet more than quarterly. Honestly, you know, I hope to be surrounded by people that um, are not yes people. I like, I like a good argument because I'm an advocate. And so I want to hear from people. And if the advocates are going to tell me I'm doing something wrong or they need to meet monthly, then that's what we'll do. That's, that's my job. And when I hear that, you know, the door of the state's attorney is closed, that doesn't make sense to me. So I'm as open to hearing from advocacy groups because they all are, in many respects, are the boots on the ground. And, and that's what I need to hear. Related a little bit to that, do you believe um, Cook County, the Cook County State's Attorney's Office has a role in non-criminal system interventions and specifically do you support investments in restorative justice systems? Yes, look, I think that the state's attorney is kind of the central part of the criminal justice system. Um, and, you know, even though the job of the office is, is kind of narrow, if you will, I think that you have to be an advocate for the whole system. And in fact, I would go a little further and say, well, people come into the criminal justice system 
through failed social programs, economic issues, no educational opportunities, no job opportunities. Those are things that even though it's not part of my job description, I think are part of what you advocate for. Because the key, when we talk about reform of the criminal justice system, the key to me is let's reform the system before people get into the criminal justice system. And let's look at our prison system and make sure, you know, I saw today Northwestern just gave another million dollars for their teaching um, in the prison system. Let's make sure that the people who are going to prison are being trained and rehabilitated so we don't have a revolving door back into the prison system. So I view myself as an advocate not just on behalf of our victims, but actually on behalf of the system so we can try to prevent people from getting into the criminal justice system. Because once you're in the criminal justice system, there are no winners. Okay, last question. How do you plan, from the audience, how do you plan to remedy the issue um, of high rates of domestic violence, sexual assault in law enforcement, and how that inhibits victims from reporting um, due to fear of retaliation from other officers, or they uh, won't be supported by the state's attorney's office to charge those officers? Listen, I think, and, and again, not in particular my job, but I think that the Chicago police and other law enforcement agencies have to do a better job about getting the necessary help for their officers. You know, these are folks that are seeing the worst of the worst every day and carry it home with them in many respects. And, and then you get uh, domestic violence issues. So the, that's part of it. That's part of what I think CPD and other law enforcement agencies have to do, but let's also realize that nobody's above the law. I don't care, you know, white, black, or wearing navy blue. You need to prosecute. And the police department needs to understand that. They need to understand that if they commit a crime, they will be prosecuted. But how do you change the current, you know, atmosphere when it comes to the code of silence yeah. and the fear that victims have if they are um, battered by a police officer, that no one will support yeah. them. What can I, you do specifically? I Any think, thoughts? I think it's a, it's a cultural thing that you have to change. But I think it's a two-way street. I think that police, you know, look, most of our men and women in blue are good and they're there to protect us. And I think they need to know that we have their backs. But I, you know, I think that knowing that and trusting that justice will get done also means that they know that if they do something wrong, they'll be prosecuted. And so I think it's a double-edged sword. I think they need to understand that you'll support them when they do their job and they do it right and they protect the, the citizens of Cook County, but they also then need to understand that if they do something wrong, the code of silence won't be tolerated. You know, we started to see that a little bit with Laquan McDonald, um, but I think that it gives, you know, just like with lawyers, you know, there's a bad lawyer, a lawyer takes a crummy case that you're like, oh, that guy should be sanctioned. I think that police officers don't like to see bad police officers. I would hope that's the case. And if it's not the case, then they're going to learn that they'll be prosecuted anyway. Okay, so that's something that would be important to you, too, that there would not be an exception, a quiet exception. No. Okay. All right, Donna Moore, thank you very thanks much so for much. joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. Donna Moore, so Democratic much, candidate for Cook County State Attorney. Thank you. Thanks so much. Take your bottle. Okay. That's yours. Uh, yes, yes, I know. You'll need it right after. I know I will. Okay. All right, one more candidate. So for those of you who could stay, it's Pat. Last but not least. And you're right here, so this is great. So I, you can just come on up.
Um, hello again. Thank you. Nice to see you. Nice to see you again. I met you earlier. I'm just going to grab um, my questions, which I have, but then I want to answer. Um, okay. So, everybody, um, our, our fourth um, candidate, and we're so happy he agreed to be here, is Pat O'Brien, Republican. Uh, on the Republican ticket for Cook County State's Attorney. Um, so thank you again for being here. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, my first question, um, and um, it's sort of a good springboard that we've had with the other or for the other candidates. What, if you're elected, what will your first office policy priority and first operational shift on gender-based violence be? The first one that I would uh, change is to try to restructure felony review so that the assistants going in there actually spend some time in preliminary hearing courts, including the sex violence court, in order to be able with assistants who, who are already there and have more experience to actually see victims, witnesses, and cases that they're subsequently going to look at in felony review. The idea that you can go through felony review evaluating cases that are gender-based violence and never having, at the point where you're evaluating, seen a preliminary hearing so that you're looking at the victim, you're looking at how they testify, what kinds of problems are presented for them in being a victim and having to come into a court situation and testify. And you can basically begin the training of those assistants so they make better cases when they get to felony review. And it should also be the purpose when you have assistance handling the misdemeanor court calls at 555 Harrison to have them go through preliminary hearings, including the uh, sex and murder preliminary hearing at 66, so they get a good idea of what it is that they're seeing maybe at a lower level in terms of the kinds of violence that they'll then be handling but so they have a much better idea and training as to how they're going to handle it. The better the case is, the better the, the chances of success at the time of trial. We won't be talking about reducing cases. We won't be talking about pleading them out. And I think there's too much of that done. It's hard to tell from the state's attorney Fox's statistics exactly how many aggravated batteries there are uh, from sexual batteries assaults but there are very few that are being tried. And her record on the ones that are tried are no better than 50-50. That's a shame. You do not deter people from committing crime when you're not successful in prosecuting the people you've accused of crime. Um, in your questionnaire, you mentioned keeping ASAs on the felony review team for only six months maximum before they'd be reassigned to a new team. Can you speak to why you believe this is the best practice, and particularly why it's the best practice for gender-based violence crimes? Sure. Um, essentially, when I went through felony review, and that was started in, not before me, so I don't want to date myself too much, uh, probably 1970, 1970 with a federal grant. Initially, the only cases that were looked at by felony review were murder cases. It then expanded. It used to be the police were the charging body for the state's attorney's office pre-1972. Just think about that. They expanded it to handle everything but narcotics. 
And when we went through felony review, uh, we tried to keep the, uh, the time you're in there down because it can be a very big deterrent to anyone's personal life or if they're married or have children to being able to function. Uh, we were doing 12-hour day shifts, three days on, three days off. We'd go from three days, seven to seven. But is that happening now with felony no, review? No, in fact, what they've done, and this is they're hiding people. They're, I, I should say, there are people in felony review that you can free from felony review to basically have more assistants who can handle domestic violence, uh, gang cases. Right now, there's about 43 to 45 people in felony review. They're doing eight-hour shifts. You should have 12-hour shifts. You can do it. If you're in your 20s and in your 30s, it's, it's, it's probably no different than you know, going to work and then ending up uh, maybe finishing the day at some bar. But I don't advocate. But. Why, though, um, if, if you do, with, with considering what you've said, why do you believe that it would be the best practice when it comes to gender-based violence crimes and cases? The gender-based violent crimes, essentially, uh, may need more time. So the idea that you have somebody on an eight-hour shift who then passes the case off just doesn't make sense to me and goes against the policy of trying to keep as few a number of assistants who actually have contact with the victim of a gender-based crime so that she doesn't have to, or he doesn't have to go through the trauma of basically starting from scratch again. So 12-hour shifts are doable. They make more sense. It's going to free up about 10 or 12 assistant state's attorneys for other duties. And the reason I say, I said six to eight months, is because Otherwise, you're going to have assistant state's attorneys who leave the office early. If you're hiring the best people, the idea is to keep them at least for six to eight years. And if you've got a particular unit that essentially, and people were doing two years in felony review, it's too long, you don't need it. You, rather, you would rather have them in courts, whether it's a misdemeanor court, whether it's a DV court, or a felony court, in order to get that kind of training. The office itself functions by having assistants with more seniority training the assistants who are in back of them. It is the only way we function, and we function better than Manhattan and Los Angeles by doing it. Okay, uh, moving on. You noted that deferred prosecution of domestic violence crimes is prohibited by statute, okay. though we know it's also currently the practice of the office. How would you change the culture of reduced accountability on DV crimes? Well, if it's the practice of the office, I'm... Again, I shouldn't be shocked because I've seen and heard so much going on that I, uh, that I think is wrong in that office. But that just can't happen. I mean, how do you go against the, what the legislature through the voters have said is appropriate? And the idea of uh, domestic violence being somehow seen as the same as, I don't know, a garage burglary just boggles the mind. When you're, when you're in a situation where you have a long-standing relationship or even a relationship that is uh, a shorter one. And the idea that somehow you've had enough, uh, I guess, courage and it's been bad enough for you to come forward and involve the police. The idea that somehow the state's attorney's office looks at you and says, you know, it's like a hangnail. Go home and you'll be okay. I think you do not change it. You advocate for cash bail. And you also advocate, now, on stalker cases, they're putting uh, GPS trackers where people are released on electronic monitoring. Everybody that's 
accused of a crime of violence that's gender-based, whether it's a misdemeanor or a felony, if they're going to go on EM, electronic monitoring, they've got to have a GPS tracker. You not only want, you want to know where they are all the time, not the fact that they, you know, the, the GPS they're doing now is, if it's a stay away kind of thing. You have to stay away from the workplace, you have to stay away from the house place. You don't just want that, you want to know where they are all the time. Okay. Um, is that something, though, that the state's attorney's office can in, enforce? I mean, with the, with this, when, when it comes to the judge saying whether or not this, uh, you know, suspect is on electronic, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Um, and I mean, I'm going to answer that this way. It's going to be uh, the judge that does it and the county that pays for it. But having been a judge for eight years, I can tell you this. If there's a state's attorney on a constant basis and the public supporting that man or woman saying, judge, we need GPS, those judges, they have to stand for attention every six years, the ones that are elected. And the associate judges have to be elected every four years by the, uh, the circuit judge. So you would fight for it. Oh, that, that's absolutely. what I'm hearing. You would try to gather support so that every single domestic violence um, suspect um, or defendant goes on GPS, GPS monitoring? Absolutely. That's something you would push. Okay. How do you believe uh, victims' constitutional rights, victims' constitutional rights should be enforced, and what should remedies be when those rights are violated? Well, clearly when they're violated to the extreme of reducing a case without telling the person who is the complaining witness or victim, or whether it's a situation where you fail at different points in time to get them into a courtroom and tell them about situation as a case develops. If, the, if you're reducing a case without going through and telling the victim, you're probably going to be um, relieved of your duties. It's just that simple. It can't happen. And as to what other kinds of remedies there can be, I was thinking about that as the question was asked. Now, I'm not going to advocate that um, victims end up suing the county when they're, they're not allowed to give a victim witness statement or when they've got a case that's reduced and they didn't have any part to play in that. Uh, but, and, it's, and it's a situation where I think I, I'm going to have to think more about it. But certainly, you know, it's not like we're going to give out coupons. There's got to be something other than just punishing the assistant state's attorney by either moving them out of the courtroom, maybe making them do another stint in felony review, or all the way to... You know, relieving them okay. of their duties. There's got to be something that also is an incentive to report it, and something that attempts to repair the damage, just like we do in, in civil trials. But what that is, I'm not sure. Okay. I mean, do you, do you give do you give somebody a hundred dollars if they? I mean, what kind of remedy is that? I'm not sure taxpayers would like that yeah, remedy. But no, but so it sounds like it's a priority to you in terms of making sure that victims. Yes constitutional rights are followed. And then I do want to move on to the next question. Okay. okay. So that is correct assessment. It is a priority and, and right. it has to be implemented yes. completely. Other than gangs and murders, uh, gender-based violence is the second, if not the 1A priority in the office. And it has to be. Okay. Moving on to misdemeanor. There are certain questions I want to try to ask all the candidates. So misdemeanor data, not currently collected. You've sat in. You know why. Um, what is your plan for solving that? Okay. Uh, when I was in the office uh, between 88 and 92, there were about 400,000 misdemeanor cases in the city of Chicago alone that passed through 
the misdemeanor courts every year. And the amount of, uh, I suppose, return on those cases was quite small. Maybe less than 1% of the people actually did any time in jail. And I don't know if that's a good measurement. And less than 5% actually had a, a conviction of any sort, whether it was uh, probation, conditional discharge. And there was probably maybe 20 to 30% who got, who got supervision. The return on that was very small. But what I did find is this. Other than cases like domestic violence, which uh, need to be focused on and where you're looking at uh, defendants who are brought in because they, they purchase sex and that can't be turned away from, I think you have to uh, attempt to make sure that you've got statistics. I don't think it's hard to do. You know, they say it, 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 assistant state's attorneys have the court sheets in their hands. So do you have a plan, though, for yeah. solving the collection of misdemeanor data? Well, I would love for the clerk's office to do it, but they're having trouble just putting together a civil uh, electronic system. I'm going to say that I'm not going to avoid passing the buck. I'll advocate for the clerk's office and for our um, computer people to basically get together and do this, but I'm going to say our assistants are going to have to do it. There's more than one assistant in a, a misdemeanor room. That's why you need those, those 10 assistants from felony review to get out and basically get into courtrooms. Okay. So we've got the court sheets. We can put down the dispositions. We can put down what's happening to those cases. And we can do the stats ourselves. Uh, that, that is a manpower issue, but I do want to also, though, it brings up manpower issues and our issues, but let's move on um, before I take questions from the audience. How will you address the massive overlap between domestic violence and gun crimes? For instance, currently no one's tracking orders for removal of firearms and on orders of protections or special conditions of bond. Do you plan to change this? Yes. Uh, clearly, when you've got a domestic violence situation, uh, you've got a potentially ongoing uh, sense by the defendant that they have a right to interfere with the victim's safety and with their security. So you've got to be able, and this occurs with police officers who I've seen in courts, obviously, when uh, you take away their guns, they talk about, well, now how can I uh, go to do my job? I'll be, you know, six months, eight months, or whatever, until the case gets settled. But that's just what we'll have to follow. And as for the uh, the person who isn't a police officer, whose guns, you happen to know at least the registered weapons, that they're there and that they get turned in. You can, you can go after registered weapons, and I would suggest that as part of what the assistant that the courtroom does is talk about and get uh, the police uh, records and from the city and from the state as to what guns are registered, and we grab those guns. We so you make it. that a priority when it comes to the cases before a judge and, okay. Yeah, and the reason is, is this. I've, I'm representing the victim in a uh, Thank you. kind of a disorderly conduct, which essentially is a continuing uh, stalking case where the defendant has repeatedly made, you know, the hang-up phone calls or the phone calls that shouldn't be made, where he's called into 911, so you have a SWAT unit that responds to the victim's house. I mean, a, a situation that creates a lot of danger. You cannot let this go on. Um, you, can't, you can't consider it like it's any other misdemeanor. It is a significant case, and you know that one out of 100, and you don't know which one it is, 
is going to result in more violence. Um, questions from the audience, and and the, there's so many topics I didn't even get to in general. But happens when you're Republican. Um, uh, well, no, I mean with with all the candidates, it's just it's 20 minutes and 20. It's not enough. But um, how will you address issues with regards to domestic violence victims who end up as defendants in the criminal justice system? For instance, self-defense. Um, I've seen cases like that, and I don't know that we handled them all that well when I was running the office, because I don't think we were as enlightened. I think the public was much further ahead than the prosecutors. But I think that the protocol would be this. Essentially, when you have a self-defense claim raised, it's probably because there's been a continuing pattern of violence against the person who's raising the claim. So will you have your ASAs look Yes. Look at that. What you do is you pull all the police reports. Some of it's to be unreported. So you ask the victim about, or at that point, the person they think they might charge an, as an accused, about those prior incidents. They're going to talk about reporting it to family members or to close friends. You pull those people in and interview them. You see if, in fact, there's a pattern that exists which you can document other than just, hopefully, just the word of the person who's accused and where the particular singular incident may not rise to the level of you know, uh, death or great bodily harm, which would give you rise to self-defense, which ends up in a, in a death. The combined pattern of that very well might, and the Illinois appellate court opinions have said it does. So then let's say that, let's give a hypothetical. So let's say um, there is a woman who um, is now um, being questioned for murdering her partner in some way, and then your ASAs do what you suggest they do, and they see that there is a long pattern, um, both anecdotally and otherwise, of domestic violence, then what hypothetically could happen when it comes to charging the victim? Uh, excuse me, well, the woman. The, yes, at that point, they're kind of in a, in a between state, whether they're a continuing victim who has a right to self-defense or whether they're an accused. And I think it's this. If the assistant who is basically doing the felony review feels the accumulated incidents don't rise to the level of self-defense, they can't charge without going through a supervisor in felony review. I was a supervisor in felony review during my long career, I guess. Um, and they couldn't do that without essentially going through an, uh, a supervisor. If the supervisor doesn't feel it rises to the level they can't charge unless they go through the supervisor in domestic and uh, sexual assault division. It's got to be a division level refusal and not just a line assistant refusal or not just the person from who supervises in felony review. Uh, flipping this a little bit, domestic violence victims sometimes don't want offenders prosecuted harshly and trials can re-traumatize. Will victims' needs, if you are elected, and wishes be taken into account when considering uh, trials and plea deals? And if so, how? To what extent? You know, there's been a back and forth on this. Initially, and like I said, probably without uh, enough thought, if the victim didn't want to prosecute, the assistant state's attorney who was handling 20, 30, or 40 cases that day would look relieved and enter a, uh, you know, a non-suit uh, dismissal at that point. I think now there's got to be an effort to convince the person that this may not be in their best interest. 
And I would say that you probably want one of your victim witness people in there along with the assistant to try to persuade the victim. However, uh, there, we, there was also a brief period which ended in disaster. And I don't know that Cook was doing it, but other counties were doing it, where they essentially were going to jail the victim for, for not prosecuting, where they would send out a, a warrant, a bench warrant to get them in. Which is just re-victimizing a victim. Absolutely. So that, that particular extreme didn't work either, thank God. So I think it's that middle ground where you essentially do your best. Don't just have the assistant do it alone. Make sure there's somebody from victim witness who's trained in it. And essentially, I think you're, uh, it may be a situation where you continue the case. Okay, you want to drop the charges. That's, that's something what, that we're listening to, and we're likely to do it. And here's our victim witness. You talk to them. But let's not drop them today. Why don't we come back in three weeks and see if you're of the same opinion? And if they're of the same opinion, I don't know that we have a choice other than to follow their wishes, but that, that kind of cooling off time, which may convince the victim based upon other activities of the accused, now they're full-throated. Let's go forward and we go and do what we're supposed to do. Okay, last question from the audience. Um, you believe more sex crimes should be going to trial? Absolutely. So if, um, if, if so, and, the, and they do, if you're elected, how do you plan on minimizing the trauma for survivors who may not want to testify? Um, let me say this first. Back in, in, and this isn't the good, good old days, this is just an attempt to give a reference point so you can understand why I'm going to say what I say next. Between 88 and 92, both before and after that, there were about 450 to 500 jury trials and about 4,000 bench trials which went forward in the 50 courtrooms in Cook County. There are still about 50 courtrooms. However, in 2019, there were 173 jury trials, less than half of the activity that was occurring two decades ago was occurring now. And the point is, there were the same number of assistants. We have three to a courtroom. As I said, 50 courtrooms spread countywide, the most of 26th Street. And yet, they were prosecuting, in terms of jury trials, 40% less. And it's hard to even tell from the statistics that Kim Fox has in her uh, database, what, how many, how many uh, sexual assaults, sexual abuses are done. You cannot have that situation. The office is underperforming because they're not sure, as a line assistant, what it is that Kim Fox wants. They okay. don't know if she wants to be a social worker or a prosecutor. But how do you plan on minimizing trauma for well, survivors who, who may not want to testify? And then we'll, we'll have to end, and thank okay. you. Essentially, you've, you had, since uh, Rich Daly was a state's attorney, a special sex crime unit where we did vertical pros. I don't know that that's changed, although they've increased the number of assistants who are directly, I guess, part of that unit. And that's, that's fine. I, I like the idea of people with uh, more training and more experience to basically be handling those cases. But you, you try to, essentially, part of the business of being a prosecutor is understanding people. And if you've done it long enough, and hopefully well enough, you're, you look to see that you can minimize. You take a person into a courtroom when the courtroom is not active, you put them in the chair, you say, I'm gonna ask you a series of questions as I would at the time. You have someone other than yourself do the cross-examination, 
And you do this over the course of a number of weeks. You can't prep a person in one day, and you can't prep them in two days if they're back to back. You have to have the lessons sink in. This is, this is education 101. If, in fact, after this desensitization to the, the process of being in a courtroom is not something that uh, is going to pr pr produce an effect where the, the victim is not comfortable and is willing to testify, then you look to potentially to get the best that you can out of the case. And if, if there's going to be some sort of a reduction, it's got to go through, again, a line of supervisors. I don't want assistant state's attorneys essentially reducing murder cases or sexual violence cases on their own. They're too significant. And quite frankly, as I said, we have 150 state's attorneys handling felony cases in trial room. Their level of, of competence, at the very best, uh, is, is tremendous. But at the middle and at the bottom, I want somebody looking over their shoulder. Okay, um, I, think, I think we're out of time. But thank you very much, Pat O'Brien, Republican candidate for Cook County State's Attorney. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being last. <laughs> um, I appreciate it. Well, you were here.